Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Todd Weir, and I will be your host for the interview today. Secularism has emerged as a central category of 21st century political thought and critical theory. Following the lead of anthropologist Talal Assad, there's a growing literature that traces the complicated relationship between state policies on religion and emergent epistemologies of the secular in the modern age. Now, most studies have focused on uh, India or the Islamic world, or they have looked at France or the United States, Uh, but the communist world has been really left out of the picture. And that is why the um, recent uh, book edited by Justine Quijada and Tam No is of particular interest. Uh, And today I had the pleasure of speaking to these two anthropologists about their book, Atheist Secularism and Its Discontents, A Comparative Study of Religion and Communism in Eurasia. And this book has just appeared uh, with Paul Grave. Uh, Justine Quijada is Associate Professor of Religion at Wesleyan University. And Taman Goh is a research fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity in Göttingen in Germany. Uh, what is important about this book is really the fact that we know so little about communist secularism. And I think that uh, listeners will enjoy learning something about the differences between Western liberal secularism as it appeared in a colonial context and in places like the United States uh, and the, and the communist uh, variant. Whereas Western models of state secularism were premised in theory, at least, on separations between religious and secular spheres and between church and state, communist regimes rejected separation and sought to rule directly over the religious realm. As the editors discuss in this interview, even after the waning of the utopian revolutionary convictions that sustained these uh, communist regimes early on, officials in contemporary communist and post-communist states continue to intervene regularly in religious affairs. And the the essays of the book, uh, which I definitely recommend to listeners, uh, are are wonderful because they all really highlight different dynamics that are currently being generated in the interaction of religious and secular actors in places such as China, Russia, Poland, Vietnam, and in places in between. So without further ado, I uh, would like to introduce our editors. Hello, and welcome back to New Books Network. Uh, My name is Todd Weir, and it's my pleasure today to be speaking to the authors of an interesting new book called Atheist Secularism and Its Discontents, A Comparative Study of Religion and Communism in Eurasia. And this is edited by by Tam Go and Justine Quijada. Justine, is that the correct pronunciation? Quijada. There we go. Uh, So let me just say, congratulate you both, first of all, on what I think is a very important book. 
because uh, secularism is emerging as a very exciting field of of critical theory, of historical anthropology, history, religious studies. And uh, this adds a new dimension, really, to this growing literature. Uh, I think most of of, uh, the literature around secularism has been developed uh, either looking at, you know, places like France or the United States or in the colonial context, India, uh, uh, parts of of the uh, particularly Islamic world. And so bringing in to the discussion the so-called uh, second world or the communist states and their successor states uh, really is, I think, a great um, addition. So, And I also want to congratulate you on having not just a few interesting essays mixed in with some not-so-interesting essays, but I think actually every one of these essays that I've read is outstanding and I think really adds uh, a very original interpretation. So it, it does actually provide a great basis for comparison, which is obviously what you've set out to do. So without further ado, uh, Tam Ngo and Justine, uh, oh, I'm already forgetting how you pronounced it, Kuihara. Uh, uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. So uh, just to get started, why don't you tell me physically where you happen to be at the present moment and uh, a little bit about yourselves and you know how you came to this project, uh, both individually and together. Tam, do you want to go first? or? Yes, please go. Okay, well, um, I'm Justine Quijada, and um, I'm currently assistant professor in the Department of Religion at Wesleyan University. So physically, I am in Connecticut, um, where we just had quite a bit of snow. And um, But I was at the Max Planck Institute in Göttingen for two years, uh, a while back now, and um, my research is on religious revival in a post-Soviet Republic, uh, the Republic of Buryatia, which is in South Central Siberia, just north of Mongolia. So I look primarily at Buddhist and shamanic revival, these days mostly shamanic revival, in that period. And um, so I came at my material very much from a Russianist, post-Soviet, Eastern European um, perspective. And that made for really interesting conversations with some of my colleagues at the Max Planck. So, Tam, do you want to? Yes. And uh, just by wonderful coincidence, Justine was sitting just uh, at the other side of a door that separates our rooms. Um, and I hear her talk quite loud. Uh, and I thought, hey, wait a minute, this lady is the thinking a lot of things that is also going on in my mind, only that she give a different name to it, and also she plays it in, di- in different reasons. Because at that time, I just uh, graduated from my, uh, well, I just finished, I defend my PhD from the few university in Amsterdam on a topic that uh, look at the um, uh, uh, massive Christian conversion to uh, um, among the Hmong population in the border between Vietnam and China, um, and that uh, that transformation is taking uh, shape uh, and taking place uh, within the framework of Vietnam, which is uh, anti-Christian secularist or atheist uh, religious policy. Uh, and then in, there are so many ways that our research, uh, Justine and I, um, uh, are similar to each other. So this, we start talking to each other just very casually uh, at lunch and then uh, later on the conversation grow longer and we decide to involve others. At the Mark here we have uh, at that time uh, a group of 
No, I think considerable side of eight uh, postdoc. I think uh, everybody work on different topic, but we take the spirit of comparison very seriously. So by talking to each other, we learn from each other's case, but we also realize the um, possibility to enrich our argument and and and, and discussion by just uh, highlighting the difference and the similarities uh, between our research, uh, despite of. Uh, regardless of where we did our research, so this book is essentially a um, a result from this very um, well, very um, interesting conversation that we have over the two years that Justin were here. Uh, until today, comparative study is still uh, the spirit of of, of, of the Maklangs. Um, we do a lot of research on different topics uh, that um, uh, is, is basically a comparison within Asia, um, among different Asian countries, but also um, uh, between Asia and Europe. And, 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 and Justin and, and I working on this project is, is uh, bridging this um, uh, this uh, comparison to Europe. Great. You know, I think for the listeners, they might not be familiar with uh, the Max Planck Institutes. Um, this is sponsored, I think, by the German government. There's a number of them. They work on various topics. Uh, Tom, is it is it purely research, the Max Planck Institute? Um, yes. Uh, I can say that this is an unique setting for research. Um I was so lucky to get here, uh, to be here. Uh, it is a um, one of the, um, I think, 170-something research institute in the entire Maklang society. The majority of Maklang's uh, institute are in natural science is a pure lab uh, uh, and pure research uh, setting in which a researcher um, in, in, in natural science, they would work uh, more closely with a leader, but in the uh, minority um, Maklang's uh, institute like our, um, they, they, we, we have departments that would follow certain team, but in which uh, individual researchers have so much uh, um, freedom to pursue their own research, but also be in a context that we can't uh, benefit from others uh, other colleagues research, but it's entirely uh, only research, no teaching, no other commitment. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I think for people that are serious about their studies, uh, it seems like a wonderful opportunity. Um, so let's 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 start uh, talking about the book. And the first thing, obviously, that we want to clarify for listeners is the term secularism. Um, you know, I think many people would still associate secularism with the way the term originated in the 19th century, being a term that describes non-belief or anti-clericalism or secular humanism or free thought. Um, you know, that's how the term originated. Uh, that's how many people would assume or that would how people would assume it, it, it functions. But really, in the context of, of the new literature, it's not precisely or not uh, not entirely what it means. Um, who would like to give us a, a bit more detail, idea of what you mean by secularism? Um, I can do that, I guess. Um, the, I mean, the thing is, is that, as you say, as the term originally was formulated uh, by Holyoke, it, yeah, it's about secular humanism, about free thinking, but it was very much for him um, a political project. It was about finding a common ground from which to um, 
create social reform without arguing about ultimate values and ultimate um, beliefs. So although he was an atheist, he was very sort of adamant. We don't care about that. We just want to find a ground under which we can move forward in a political project. And I think that meaning stays very much with secularism. The problem with the term, of course, is that every author that uses it defines it a little differently. Um, And for us, it was very much, and I think something that is becoming a a dominant definition of the term secularism is the realization that it is very much a project, Uh, sometimes an intellectual project, very often a political project. So um, for us, secularism was the political project of the state to create in the, in the communist case, the project to create a state without religion, um, which of course they didn't succeed in doing. Um, But secularism then more broadly in a global sense is about political projects to ground authority or sovereignty in the human realm and and thereby create sort of a a political space without the influence of religion in it. And then what that looks like, of course, is different in each state that tries to engage in that project. And the value of seeing it as a project rather than like a condition. So it's both an ideology and a project is because it lets you look at sort of like how it motivates people and states and organizations to try and do things. Um, and achieve a particular goal, even if they don't necessarily, as in the case of communist states, right? You can see what they were working towards, even if they didn't get there. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, very good. <laughs> um, so, so in other words, it's, it's more than just the notion of separation and church and state. Um, how, what's the relationship between the idea of separation and secularism? Oh, I think uh, the answer is already given in in in, in Justin. Uh, but I would like to elaborate on that. Uh, why? Um, um, so basically, the the classical idea of secularism is a separation between state uh, and religion. Or um, in, in 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 European case, it's clearly the state and the church. Uh, why it doesn't work, and why we cannot use the term separation for the case of. Um, the relation between the state and uh, religion in communist country or in the communist world is is precisely because as a historical project that is that every communist state aimed to carry out in order to uh, basically assure its role as the only authority and also the one that would control other um, possible authority that like religious authority, um, communist state, uh, in order to control uh, religion, it actually uh, end up interacting with religion a lot more than it, 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 it originally planned to. So there's no way separation can happen. And also uh, in many uh, other traditions like uh, the case of Vietnam or China, where the presence of popular religion is so dominant, um, there are also what we, what Weberians scholar would call one religion in this country, but uh, popular religion is equally or in some case even more important than than former religion. Um, In order to make that separation happen, you you need a well-defined religion. But in this this case like Vietnam, China, where popular religion is the 
dominant mode of religiosity in society uh, instead of making a separation with it um, a communist state often have to uh, do the dirty work of creating a form of popular religion before they can separate themselves from it so mm. as we know uh, this this mingling between communist uh, millenarians idea and the populist uh, and, and popular religions um, uh, millenarian idea in china and vietnam often often mingle into uh, mingle with, with each other and 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 uh, um, you know create a very interesting kind of tango uh, 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 tango uh, on the ground between these two parties no way to separate them yeah yeah um you know it's interesting but i think both of you are anthropologists aren't you Yes. Yes. Um, it's interesting to me as a historian that um, that that this this historical investigation of the of the genesis of these various forms of secularism has been driven largely by anthropologists and by anthropology. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the most famous figure is probably Talal Assad, a, a anthropologist now in New York. Um, I'm just curious, like, why is it that um, anthropology as a field has? Why is it particularly perhaps well suited to to this work of, you know, looking at these entangled um, relations between the state and religion? Well, I think that partially um, has to do with the fact that Talal Assad was one of the figures as an anthropologist. He called back in 1993 for an anthropology of secularism, um, and his audience was primarily anthropologists, and we have attempted to rise to the challenge. Um, but it. It, for two reasons. Um, I mean, one of the, the most obvious reasons is that we tend to work in places where secularism isn't as easy to take for granted. I think a lot of um, 20th century sociology and political science sort of assumed that secularism was um, the status quo, that it was a, a social good, and they didn't really think about it as anything other than just this sort of simple idea of separating church and state, which is a good thing, and that's it. Um, Anthropologists have a tendency to work in places where that project is much, much harder to carry out. So we see the friction that comes into play when you're trying to institute a secular regime in a place that doesn't fit. Um, So it becomes, the logic of the system becomes more evident. But also just methodologically, anthropologists are interested in the texture of everyday life. We're interested in the details and something which in the West is such a sort of background idea is really hard to quantify. It's something people don't think about very often. And so you need this kind of detailed, textured microanalysis in order to even find it. Uh, And I think that's why anthropology was at the forefront of, of trying to do that. And now that, that hopefully now that anthropologists have been working on it for a while, it's, it's going to be something that one can then back out and, and generalize about maybe and quantify. But, um, but it's really hard to see if you're not looking at micro examples. The, the other, you know, uh, disciplinary influence uh, I, that I see in the secularism studies um, has been post-colonial theory, which, you know, anthropologists are involved in as well. But nonetheless, the, the post-colonial um, um, approach, if you so will, has been absolutely central in the development of this interest in secularism. Um, do you want to say something about, about that? Why is that 
context been particularly important? Well, for me, uh, uh, as someone who worked on a post-colonial society, I see uh, only the obvious reason why uh, secularism is central to the to any anthropological study of reason in post-colonial society for various reasons. So, one, for example, I could think of is. Um, um basically the relation between the state and religion in a in 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 post in post colonial society like vietnam is defined uh de- defined deeply and largely by the the colonial history uh, of the country um in in so many ways that uh, uh, that 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 a state uh, take for example the uh, the case of catholicism in vietnam um the way that the state deal with uh, this religion is uh, is ununderstandable if one does not look into the history of french intervention in vietnam and the role of the catholic church in uh, uh, the entire period of um of colonial history and also when the, um when 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 the Viet Minh or the the, the the Vietnamese try to see independent and what they perceive of the role of the Catholic Church, so these are one example. The other example that uh, uh, Jane, Jane Winner uh, or um, Evan Grant uh, is discussing for the case of Vietnam or Laos is that um, um, the 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 very um, uh, policy carried out by the French. In Laos and in Vietnam, uh, is continued by the state uh, of Laos and Vietnam uh, towards a very different uh, religious group. So it is a continuity of uh, uh, of, of the, the secular project that that uh, uh, that study in Europe and uh, is is take over by the post-colonial society. So when we study. Um, in the southern society, we have to take into account this uh, global phenomenon of uh, a secularism, uh, secularization. Yes. And and um, you know, I said at the beginning that this book I think is important because it brings in a, a new perspective. Uh, you know, it seems to me that there's um, been a bit of a blind spot in also in post-colonial studies uh, when dealing with with communist regimes. Um, it seems that most of the examples have lo- looked at the transition from, uh, you know, the colonial era into some type of whatever the, the post-colonial independent, you know, largely capitalistic systems of, of say India or, um, or other countries. Um, so let's, I just make my question there is, um, you know, in what way in a general sense has, is the, communist and post-communist experience of secularism different? I realize that's a huge question, <laughs> but, uh, but maybe we can take a stab at that. What is what, what might readers who are familiar with books by Talal Asad discover in your book that they might not have known? <laughs> well, what's interesting, I mean, what's different about communism, about secularism in the communist world is really fairly self-evident. Um, and that's part of why I think the communist world was so often excluded. Um, in, in Western secular, Western liberal secular states, the goal is, as we discussed before, the separation of church and state. And so there's this idea of privatized religion. Religion stays in its private sphere and, um, and 
keeps out of the public sphere. That's the realm of the state. And, and as you know, that doesn't work in the communist world, right? For the communist ideology, religion is a problem. Even there is no private sphere in the same way that there is in the West, in sort of Western liberal ideology. Um, the private is the political and um, even privatized religion is a problem. So the goal is, of course, the complete eradication of religion from social life, um, which, you know, that's the ideological goal. It very clearly was never achieved. What I think and because of that, um, for the most part, people would talk about state-sponsored atheism or state-imposed atheism and not so much use the word secularism. What's really interesting, I think, is not the difference, but rather the immense similarities. Because the political views of what religion is and why it's a problem come out of the exact same Enlightenment philosophical project that produced Western secularism. A lot of the discourse about religion is an antiquated um, frame for explaining the world that will be superseded by science. That is very similar in the two places. Um, the idea of producing, as Tam was saying earlier, right, in order to separate church and state, you have to produce the right kind of church and the right kind of state. Right? Very often, communist regimes would take very Western models of what's a religion in order to try and, and suppress it. And it didn't work because they were dealing with religions that didn't fit into those parameters. Um, so what's actually really interesting is not so much how the communist world is different, but actually how similar they are, despite the fact that the ultimate goal of eradicating religion from the public sphere entirely um, is very different from the goal, the political goals in, in Western secularism. So what I think people who are used to looking at studies of secularism in, in uh, the U.S., in France, in India, in the Islamic world will find when they look at the communist world is a lens through which they can see some of the things, some of the discourses and some of the practices that are also going on in Western secularism through a slightly different lens um, because they are, in fact, a lot more similar than than one would expect. Um, the um, uh, you know much of the book I think is really dealing with the last say thirty years, forty years of history, right? So, so I mean, a great interest here has been really this transition around nineteen eighty nine, ninety ninety one, from sort of Tiananmen Square to the fall of the Berlin Wall to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, so. Okay, I just want to throw out a sort of assumption, a naive assumption from somebody who doesn't know the literature very well. One could one could assume, let's say, that uh, that the decline of communism was marked by a, a failure of a utopian ideology, and that with the failure of the utopian ideology comes a rebirth of religion, and hence conversion to Christianity in many Asian countries, uh, new religious movements in the Soviet Union, uh, and so on. Um, uh, does, what, do you, what do you can use any examples, really, I think, from from your book. But uh, um, is that a, is that a, is that a valid notion or how would you um, problematize that? Well, I think um, what you mentioned is also what uh, crossed our mind. But um, 
but but I do think that since uh, we uh, well, one of the argument that the book and the collect uh, the 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 collection of essay trying to say that secularism is a historical project, not a historical process. So um, it it never it, it is still working. It is still going on. It never really get to its goal, its ideological goal that is the, well, basically reaching this this. Uh, uh, Complete right, uh, but this moment um, of 1989 and 1991 uh, really uh, bring our change. Um, in which I, I I could think of, uh, for example, on the assumption about religion and communism that we have up to that point was produced by the influence of co-war politics, uh, whether. Uh, this assumption really the case in reality um, we don't know for sure because despite of the uh, quite last literature we have on 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 religion and co war we do not know yet on the ground uh, whether um, secularism or atheist uh, um, secularism was already achieving its goal in in various communist societies so uh, that's why we we thought it also a moment uh, when we met each other uh, and re and and reviewing the literature the literature we really think that this it it is time now to re-examine re-question this assumption from uh, that that were made in the nineties when scholars freshly have access to Russia to China and making this assumption based on what they understand of the influence of Cold War politics on this society. Uh, the, the 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 other side. Uh, there's another reason why I think this moment are important because it is connecting to a change, a fundamental change in politics in various uh, communist society. In Russia, for example, it is, uh, in 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 Russia and other Eastern European, it was the official ending of communist regime. Therefore, uh, the state, although well, we all know that there is still continuity of certain form of, of power and ruling in this place, but uh, the formal discourse cannot can no longer be the can no longer be uh, uh, the one that was ruling before this moment anymore. So it was not a communist country that 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 uh, take Russia for example that is imp still imposing certain rule uh, when it comes to dealing with religion in 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 country like Vietnam or China where the you know the 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 communist regime continues the um, still there is immense change because uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union Vietnam and China for example have to refigure its intent in its um, um, international relation external relation as well as internal relation. So externally, Vietnam and China both want to become a part of the global um, economy with export, with uh, with world trade organization. And with that, uh, the Vietnam and China have to come, have to comply with the demand from Western world, say leading uh, by the by the United States when it comes to regulation about religious freedom, for example. So the, the relation between the state and religion have to change. And also internally, uh, driving economic reform is uh, as forces that would um, take away the attention to certain 
religious uh, practices. So things that was um, banned or, de- or defined as superstition before now are no longer seen the same after 1989 or 1991. Um, it, then the third uh, important issue here is how uh, in this post-socialist country, um, when the legitimation of the ruler of the communist state um, uh, is fading away uh, the way to mobilize na- uh, nationalist uh, movement or, or, or um, the action is to uh, ironically uh, um, employ religion. So in Vietnam or China or Laos, uh, religion become uh, um, the, the, the heart of national uh, identity, <coughs> it become a kind of uh, sacred heritage that uh, on which the uh, uh, protection of national sovereignty uh, is defined. So you see, uh, these things um, only happen um, or, or, or coming out into place uh, thanks to this um, uh, monumental change in uh, 1989 with the collapse of Soviet Union in 1991 when uh, you know, um, uh, reformed is, is, is feeling strongly in certain parts uh, of, of the world like Vietnam and China. You know, I wanted to follow up on that, what you were just saying about the um, the way that the state determines uh, which religions are considered superstitious or somehow negative, which ones they want to assimilate. Um, and I was struck, uh, you know, there's several essays about China. Um, and the one that particularly by, I think, Dan Smiryu, um, he, yes. he looks at he looks at really three factors, the state and its scientific atheism the uh, rise of, of Protestantism in particular and Buddhism. And he, he, he uh, sort of compares, there's a comparison there in the way that the state approaches Christianity on the one hand and Buddhism on the other. And I suppose even a, something that's in the edge would be some kind of, you know, folk practices. Uh, so c- could you give me just a bit of a detail about how the Chinese state, um, you know, sort of picks and chooses when it when it interacts with these various religions and and how it you know what that tells us about contemporary chinese secularism okay so um Yes, I, I think the, the the essay by Dan and also in many ways by Tzu have us to understand uh, what is going on with Chinese uh, Chinese uh, communism and Chinese re- uh, religiosity. Um, and I think the argument here again returns to this uh, um, well this, this to this previous question about the. Uh, impact of colonialism in China. Okay, China never been uh, colonized, but the the impact of um, it, uh, and what uh, Peter Van der Beer called uh, imperial encounters uh, is so strong um, in the uh, intellectual um, in the, uh, debate in the country in the ways that. Um, it, it, it results uh, till today in the state approach toward um, uh, different world religion. So um, certainly, uh, well, as we all know, uh, how Chinese government uh, sort of classify different type of Christianity. Some so the the, the state approved uh, church, 
um, is, is, is encouraged and uh, getting a lot of space to maneuver to produce uh, result and, 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 and create action in society. But those who belong to house church or to a new, um, well, basically new growth, uh, really um, a Christian group in the country is tightly under control uh, because of the very idea about uh, religion and, subs- uh, and uh, subversion it could uh, produce. And um, on the other hand, Buddhism uh, is something very similar to Vietnam that the state when it come it when it have to come to choose um between religion uh buddhism somehow stand on a on a very good ground in china case it is complicated because buddhism uh well there are some brand of buddhism is, is clearly not favorable by the state uh, that is for example uh, tibetan buddhism but uh, dan's uh, research also shows us that even within tibetan buddhism there is a progress that is that 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 um uh, not every every uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhist group are discriminated, but some are now uh, uh, gaining uh, enormous uh, popularity. So, what we uh, I, I so I think any conclusion we can make uh, about such case is that um, neither the communist state or religion in this country stay stay. Uh, um, uh, static, but they progress and interact, and it's very hard to make a conclusion about its relation, their relation, at any point in time. Yeah, good. So, the, um, the on the point about the scientific atheism, um, what is the position of the of the of the you know recent uh, the Chinese state? Um, you know, okay. There's a, there's a, there's an argument I think made by by both of those authors, Xi and for you about the, you know, the kind of during the Mao era, there was this tremendous utopian energy contained within the ideology. Mm. And, and it's sort of what has happened to that particular, you know, ideology that was driving a lot of this earlier secularism. Where, what are the remnants today of that? How do we observe that? Do you want well, to get into the good to answer that, Justine? Or? Sure. Um, in part because some of my research um, addresses that as well. Um, I think, well, there's a number of different ways in which that ideology leaves remnants, um, both in how the state approaches things um, as well as in how people practice, uh, which is one of the more interesting questions. Um, so, for example, um, Dan Smyre, you talks about this uh, sort of scientific apologetics, um, the way in which religions try and argue, use scientific proof to justify their practices. Um, that's certainly a very strong strain in, in Buddhism, not just in, in China or, say, in Buryatia, where I work, but also like Tibetan Buddhism more broadly um, makes arguments about how it is compatible with science. It's a scientific philosophy. Um, that's certainly this uh, idea of skepticism and trying to marshal scientific proof for religious practices and religious belief is very common in, in the area that I work. Um, where, uh, yeah, there's a lot of discussion about, about scientific proof and, and, um, an idea about skepticism in the sense that like we, we're not just believers, we are skeptics. And so we marshal evidence in order to believe 
And that I think is, is very much still a habit that comes out of this kind of um, modern secular subjectivities that were being crafted by communist states. Um, Another really interesting example is in Matthias Pelkman's chapter uh, about um, Kyrgyzstan, where Islam is definitely reviving as a source of national tradition, right? And had been acknowledged as a source of national tradition throughout the Soviet period and tolerated precisely um, co-opted, controlled by the state, but also tolerated as national tradition, um, now is coming in the post-Soviet period, right? One of the, the big things that changed in, in it from like 89 to 91, I mean, all the things that Tam mentioned in that transition. Um, but we also have to add to it, right? you have, you have 75 years of the communist states defining religion as the anti ideology. Um, and then you have an influx of missionaries. So in Kyrgyzstan, in, in Matthias Pelkman's chapter, there are um, very conservative Islamist missionaries coming into Kyrgyzstan. And there's a certain pushback from the admittedly, Muslim population there, but they identify someone as atheist Muslims saying, no, but this isn't the kind of religion that we think you should practice, right? They actually have um, tremendous, like, not just that they believe in the separation of church and state, but the habits in which they assume how churches should behave, are grounded in a very secular assumption about separation of church and state. And so what the missionaries are trying to do seems very offensive because it, it rubs up against these secular habits of people who are identify as religious, but that's not the way religion is supposed to act in this place. Um, so those are two very strong habits. I think that people have retained from the Soviet period, this idea that, that, um, Religion is a place where national tradition lives, but religions need to behave in certain ways. Um, and this sort of skeptical attitude towards belief that tries to um, invoke scientific arguments in defense of faith. And in a sense, sort of um, to keep, right, because the Soviet period, Soviet ideology very, very much associates religion with the past, a religion is a is a survival. It's a backwards kind of practice, and a modern person is going to leave all of this backwardness behind. So, on the one hand, people are very attracted to religion because the Soviet state or the communist state in China and Vietnam spent so much time defining it as the enemy, right? And then the ideology kind of falls apart. You're like, oh, let's check out this thing that was always defined as the enemy. Uh, but at the same time, they're very reluctant to get to give up their self-identification as modern subjects and modern subjects are not really religious subjects. So that produces a tension in how they practice religion um, that I think very much carries over from the, the communist period. Well, uh, may I add a little bit to that? Uh, there is, uh, well, in, in, in Vietnam, the same issue is, is, taking a much higher level, much further uh, in its, it's to me uh, really amazing that 
uh, instead of being the enemy of science, uh, uh, religion in Vietnam nowadays practiced by, by many different groups are incorporating religion. So, for example, we have this uh, um, uh, new movement in Vietnam, uh, which I broadly define as spiritist movement, uh, which involves the top-ranking scientists. Uh, the, for example, the founder of uh, quantum physics in Vietnam, a professor um, trained in Russia, or the director of Pasteur Institute, the number one virologist in Vietnam now, are uh, um, leading uh, figure in this spiritist movement. So instead of uh, seeing religion as belonging to the past or what the communist uh, state defined as, as superstition, uh, superstitious and backward, religion is the future. Uh, the tool of science, science become a tool to, to find proof and enhance religious experience. So we have this, uh, for example, society of telepaths uh, in Vietnam who um, not only wear a scientific uniform like, uh, you know, linguists talk uh, very similar to what linguists describe of, of, of what happened in Russia. In Vietnam, mm-hmm. they, they, they modify a, a metal detector machine to search for soul and born, they uh, use quantum physics to 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 uh, to argue for the existence of the soul. They use vi- um, the latest uh, research in lab uh, um, uh, laboratory research about virus and virology to to prove the material base of, of human soul and ghost. So this thing uh, definitely can be seen as remnant of. of, of um, uh, communist uh, promotion of science and suppression of religion, but at the same time, one can also say that this is um, a continuum of that, that uh, mentalities. It has to be scientific to be magical. Uh huh. You know, just to follow up on this idea of the remnants of the of the uh, communist uh, project, um, how when when you talk about the um, you know, these efforts to, to marry science to these religious practices or religious, um, you know, innovations, to what degree is the state always involved? And is it tend, does it tend to always be involved on the side that is trying to, uh, you know, bring science into the equation? Um, in other words, uh, how central is the state in, these, in the evolution of these types of, of syncretic um, movements such as you've just described um well in the case of vietnam the state uh, has its hand very tight here uh, because uh, on the one hand what people are doing is still broadly religious uh, and of course with being religious it also have this very zealous moment uh, which will create social and political action that is not entirely what the state wants because in the end Communist control is very much realizing on on certain line about social stability and order and religious practitioner, Albert scientist, uh, scientific or, or non scientific, often uh, overstepping that. So, for example, in Vietnam, this telepathic society leading by by uh, by uh, top ranking uh, scientists, they are often making demand uh, and comment on political situation using the voice of the spirit that they invoke through laboratory test to make comments about uh, current government policy and so on. These things are not uh, something that um, authorities in Vietnam are happy about. But on the other hand, um, uh, 
this scientists are uh, and 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 their so-called discovery is also a way of face saving for a lot of uh, political authority in Vietnam uh, for the very fact that they being in power they themselves are also inclined towards certain religious uh, action and and uh, and 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 answer when it comes to political decisions so uh, if someone if if if, if science can prove that it is um, that that it exists but it appears science, scientific then then it's kind of is a kind of face saving but um, long and short the state uh, play a very um how you say um a very um um uh, sometimes quite passive role in this uh, development it is the people uh, that carry out this um well basic, basically uh, leading the, the 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 movement and it's often getting uh, in into uh, co- uh, conflict with the state There's a similar example in in Victor Schnurman's chapter, for example, um, that happened in Russia. And the parallels are, this was one of these like parallels where you, you know, that where we're sitting around at lunch talking and thinking, wow, this is the same stuff happening in one place or another. Um, so in Victor Schnurman's chapter, he writes about um, the Soviet state was trying to suppress Christianity and um, foster state rituals and public rituals that were grounded in sort of pre-Christian Russian pagan practices as a way of making them less religious, right? To the state, these sort of folk religious practices seemed less religious and a better way of grounding national sentiment and national feeling. So they promoted these sort of folk festivals and They were so popular that they ended up sparking a kind of neo-pagan revolution and neo-pagan movement that ended up taking a very anti-state stance. So in a sense, it was an attempt to buy the state to foster something that they thought was safe ends up taking off and kind of positioning itself against the state and becoming a problem for the state. So precisely as Tam said, these things... There's that that's one of the reasons why this idea of separation of church and state, it's an ideal. But in practice, there's so much intertwining and such ambiguous positions that it's much more productive to look at the ways in which state and religious practices kind of feed into each other and produce unexpected consequences. Well, it would seem that the um, the legacy really of this this um, interventionism without bounds from the early communist era, you know, established a precedent in terms of state intervention, so that you you have very, a very dynamic situation when it comes to religion. It would seem from reading the essays, um, you know, that that uh, even this example of the folkish religion being developed by the state and then escaping the bounds of the state, it nonetheless has part of its origin in this intervention by the state into religious uh, traditions and religious politics. Um, so the other, the other thing that pops up uh, uh, repeatedly and I, and also that I, as a reader brought to this question um, of religion in, in post communist societies is, is the issue of, of nationalism. Uh, you know, there's, there's been influential articles in Soviet history. I'm thinking of Yuri Sleskin Uh, you know, arguing really that with the Second World War, the Soviet Union stopped being an internationalist 
uh, communist regime and really became a nationalist Russian, great Russian re- regime. Um, just curious, you know, thinking about your, your project, how does nationalism uh, fit into this negotiation between the state and, and religions? Mm. You want to go for it, Nastine? Uh Sure. The, um, yeah, I mean, the idea of, of nationalism and the, this was one of the themes that emerged as being a really clear uh, idea that carries through everything and that I think also provides a very productive point of comparison back to um, Western liberal secularism. Uh, Talal Asad makes the argument in one of his articles that secularism is intimately tied to the nation state form because it requ- it's one of the ways in which you can ground a state identity, right? Religion is sort of an individualistic thing. So if you want to try and ground a state identity that's encompasses diversity, secularism is an essential part of doing that. Um, and I'm not sure that that necessarily carries over perfectly into the communist world, um, but the ubiquity of the nation state form and even, I mean, there's a tension in the Soviet Union all the way through between internationalist aspirations and just the, the habit of the nation state form. Um, it's certainly there in, in a lot of the post-colonial states as well, this idea that this is just the only way to imagine a state. And so the religions that are able to kind of occupy the space of national religion have to be accommodated and dealt with in a way that you can't, um, you have to, you have to negotiate with them. Whereas like missionary religions, things that are seen as foreign, um, things that can be written off as superstition can be suppressed in a very different way than ones that can make claims on, on national tradition. And, um, the need to produce rituals to sort of bolster national forms and national identities also seems to have been a, a universal point across all of these states and, and doesn't seem to be something that any of them were willing to, to sort of abandon. Yeah, and also uh, if we uh, notice that um, the big, uh, at the very beginning of uh, Benedict Anderson's books about nationalism, he comments on the war between Vietnam and China in 1979 uh, as uh, a clear sign that in the end, uh, nationalism is still the force that drives the national and international politics, not in the uh, Communi- um, not international communism as for decades uh, Russia, China, uh, Vietnam declare or what's the, the you know the, 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 the opponent, the capitalist won't believe that uh, the, believe in the importance of international communism. Um, this example between Vietnam and China going as two communist brothers going at war with each other, Showing that nationalism uh, will 
is is the strongest force, and it will it will uh, employ any other forces within the nation and beyond in order to 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 degenerate its vitalities. And in Vietnam uh, nowadays, how religion play a role in the nationalist project is just so clear. Uh, for example, uh, in this, uh, in, you know, recently Vietnam and China is again engaging in some territorial dispute in which um, um, uh, various religious groups in Vietnam uh, are also take, taking the taking uh, uh, part in it uh, for by for example Buddhist group uh, dispatching monks to to rocky islands in order to take a national claim uh, put a sacred stamp on the national territories spiritual group in 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 the city going to borderland uh, areas to pray uh, to invoke the soul of the uh, ancient Vietnamese ancestor to protect the nation from uh, the enemy and so on. The Vietnamese government are nominating various uh, um, um, uh, religious uh, tradition that formerly defined as uh, illegal and superstition as national heritage and apply for the uh, UNESCO heritage status um, and so on. These are uh, one uh, some among many examples about how religion, instead of being the enemy of the state, now is actually the column of national um, uh, identity. And like I mentioned previously, that whole politic of heritageization of religion nowadays um, is what defines the role between religion and communist state. Uh, and also in Russia, we can see that uh, how Putin is is is, uh, may, uh, is taking a very close relationship with the Orthodox Church. Uh, in our books, um, uh, Agnieszka describes the continuing uh, uh, important role of the uh, Catholic Church in the whole uh, history of Poland uh, during uh, after uh, Second World War uh, until today. So um, definitely, religion is now one of the core component of nationalism in many of these uh, communist country. Yeah, I, I was just thinking of this essay by uh, Heonik Kwon about North Korea's uh, war memorials, and it's a wonderful comparison looking at the war memorials in South Korea and North Korea. Um, and you know, I think that that's really what your book offers. Even you know, in this one article, this comparison, but you really open up to comparisons with many different countries, um, which is why I think it's it's going to be very useful um, to many people. Um, so I, I have a, I have some, some some final question for both of you. But before I ask, um, I'm just curious if you want to highlight any of the essays that you find you know particularly compelling or some topic that maybe we haven't touched on. Well, I think one of the things that's important to know about the, the book as a whole um, is that one of the reasons why the essays work so well together is, in fact, because they came out of, a, of an actual conversation, right? So the conversation started between Tam and I over lunch at the Institute, um, but eventually opened up into a workshop. We had a call for papers. We got an overwhelming response. We got like 120 um, proposals from that, we narrowed it down and everyone that contributed to the book, as well as a number of other people, um, came to a workshop at the Max Planck and all of them had written their papers. Everyone 
the papers were circulated in advance. We read each other's papers. We talked about each other's papers over the course of a couple of days. And then everyone took those conversations home to revise their chapters. So when we say the chapters are in conversation with each other, they really are. Um, all the authors were in the same room arguing about each other's points before they went home to make the final revisions. And I think that's one of the real strengths of the book. A lot of edited volumes are just sort of collections of things that people came across. This is really organically produced out of a conversation. Um, despite the fact that we have a lot of different topics, um, so we have a couple of book, of chapters. So Jane Werner's chapter on uh, the history of, of cooperation with Vietnam. Um, we have Grant Evans' chapter about Buddhism in Laos. Uh, Agnieszka's chapter about Poland. Um, and Zizhe's chapter about China. Those are all chapters where we look at, where that look at the ways in which um the state cooperated with religious forms. Um, Sonia Lorman's chapter, I mean, you just mentioned Honit Kwan's, which looks at, at uh, cemeteries. Sonia Lorman's chapter uh, is really, I think, a fantastic chapter because it gets to one of the core debates that we had at the workshop, which is this longstanding question of, is communism a religion? Is it productive to look at it as a religion? And she offers a different lens on that question, which is, let's look at communism versus religion in terms of um, levels of transcendence, right? What kinds of transcendence does it aspire to? And that allows you to make comparisons without choosing sides, right? It's not communism is a religion and it's, or it's not a religion, but look at this way in which it's kind of like one, but also different. Yeah. I'm very I think sympathetic. That's really productive. I'm very sympathetic to that approach because, uh, you know, the, I, I find the problem with political religion, which is a theory that pops up as well in some of the pages, um, you know, it takes religion to be a norm, um, usually looking at Catholicism as an example, uh, and then compares everything to, you know, ecclesiastical structures and eschatological frameworks, um, you know, and then and then everything becomes then a, 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 a merely one form of, of Western Christianity. Um so, uh, you know, finding some way to make comparisons without relying on that, I think, is very useful. And, and that is also precisely what uh, Adam Chow in his uh, article contribute, that uh, uh, he, he basically point out uh, a, a, a common truth that a lot of study about religion and secularism uh, today, uh, anthropologically or, other, uh, or from um, other disciplines, tend to play too much importance on this, uh, uh, you know, the relation between, uh, be, uh, on, on church-state relation, whereas uh, religious practices in many places, in, uh, especially in Asia, is carrying out uh, in a much more diverse form and by diverse uh, um, actor. So he, uh, in the case of China, for example, he highlights the role of the family, the household, as a, as, as a critical unit, actually the most critical unit in, in, in continuing or discontinuing certain kind of religious uh, practice and behavior. And I think this uh, uh, nuances, anthropological perspective uh, is, is something that, uh, that's very helpful to, to, to provide a fuller understanding of the, you know, uh, the program, the um, um, religion and uh, communism 
relation uh, in China and elsewhere. Yeah, I would agree. Um, most of our authors, not all of them, but most of the authors that contributed are anthropologists, in part because that's precisely that kind of like everyday life texture that you find different perspectives. Um, so again, I agree. Adam Chow's chapter is is great because it offers this other perspective. Um, there's also a chapter um, by. Clemona Antonova, who's uh, an art historian who looks at how people relate to icons in post-Soviet Russia as a way of sort of getting to that different perspective on how people practice. Um, so all of the chapters have that kind of texture of everyday life that enables different ways of getting at the question. And I, I would just add, though, that I think that what's interesting about in general, this is true of the literature on secularism, but the fact that the state is always absolutely central in the analysis, I think, is something that really allows this type of work to be very useful to, say, you know, historians, political theorists, um, and so on. So, um, you know, I, I think that that, um, that is something that really opens it up um, for, for other readers as well. Um, great. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion, and I think that uh, you know, hopefully, people who are listening to this will realize that we have we haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> we've sort of we've, we've just looked at the surface a little bit uh, of this book. So uh, there's just so much in it um, that I hope people will go and and uh, and have a look for themselves. So the the final question that we always like to ask is just to give us a little bit of a of a look forward, um, something about what you're working on now maybe future projects? Uh, well, uh, oh, okay. Go ahead, Justin. I come up to you. Okay. Um, well, I just sent uh, a book manuscript off uh, for review, so wish me luck. Um, and uh, it, which looks at um, different rituals in Buryatia, which, as I said, is a, a autonomous republic in south-central Siberia. Um, one of the things that happens... Um, around 1989 is that these sort of dominant historical narratives supported by the state fall apart and ritual, both civic ritual as well as, as predominantly religious ritual becomes a place where people can explore different uh, histories and different stories about the past of the place that they're in. So I look at different rituals in that book as a way of, of telling different alternative histories of this place. Um, and I'm, I'm currently also working on what I've been working on for a very long time is um, the revival of shamanism in, in Boryatia and especially the tendency in the post-Soviet period to try and make shamanism an institutional religion, um, which traditionally has, well, I hate the word traditional, right? This is something that they constantly argue about. People say, is it traditional? Is it not? It was with Genghis Khan. And, um, but increasingly there are these shamans organizations that are building churches and, and trying to institutionalize that practice. And, um, so I'm trying to look at that process, um, actually beginning in the late Soviet period when there's an increasing academic interest in shamanism uh, all the way up through now where this revival meets with a global new age interest in shamanism and in reviving these kinds of practices for a much broader global audience. So that's what I'm working on. Tam? 
Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, I have so many things that I'm working on, but uh, just like <laughs> Justine, yes, I uh, I just finished a book which uh, will come out in June in print uh, this year. So very excited. Uh, that's a, that's my first book about based on my PhD research on this massive uh, Protestant conversion among the Hmong in the border of Vietnam and China. The Hmong is about a million people population in Vietnam, uh, and this uh, conversion is very uh, kind of peculiar because it were carried out not by missionary encounters uh, or human interaction, but it was initiated by radio uh, and by, by, by the broadcasting work of the FICE broadcasting company, a U.S.-based um, uh, massive uh, radio ministry that also operate in, in Eastern Europe, Russia, um, and, uh, and very, very big in Asia. And they uh, broadcast this uh, Christian uh, proselytization section uh, uh, aiming at China. Uh, well, the, the, the whole effort have a lot of Cold War history in there. Also, this whole idea about the Far East as, a, as one of the places where the devil inhabit they, but the signal was accidentally caught by the Hmong on the mountain of Vietnam who, who uh, take this uh, Christian message at, at heart. But because they also uh, believe, uh, they are also practice uh, a form of Hmong millenarianism. So when they hear Christian message, they thought it is a message about their return messiah and they convert, uh, well, they, they, they follow millenarian action before they convert to Christianity. Uh, but unfortunately, their conversion uh, come up against so much uh, uh, obstacle by the state because the Vietnamese government see not only the Hmong as a, uh, as a minority with trouble, but also because of their relation with 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 the Vietnam War, you know, half of the Hmong uh, in Laos fight with the with the American Army, um, and the other half fight with the communists. So, with the history of the group, and then Christianity being brought by radio in uh, in in the time that radio is still seen as the instrument of of, of, of imperial um, forces like America. So, uh, altogether, um, state authority have tried for two decades to stem this uh, religious uh, movement but in the end uh, uh, it, it wasn't successful because nowadays there is about one third of Hmong in Vietnam who uh, define themselves as Christian so my book described the, um, the, 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 the movement from the beginning until today and the identity politics that it, uh, it, uh, it is shaped by this uh, bizarre global uh, uh, Christianity uh, interaction with native uh, Messiaans, uh, uh, millennialism. So that uh, is all done. Uh, and I'm excited that finally that 10-year project is out soon. Uh, and currently, since 2011, I have been working on uh, two uh, projects. That, um, um, that, that, that is a clear continuation of my interest in the relation between religion and communism in so many ways. Uh, the first project, as you, uh, I, I, I mentioned a little bit about it at the beginning of the introductory essay in this book um, with Justine. Um, that is uh, um, uh, uh, that is a, a movement in Vietnam to form the religion of Ho Chi Minh. Uh, so you know, Ho Chi Minh died some. 40, 50 years ago, uh, and after he died, the Vietnamese uh, communist state has made him into a sort of godly figure of a national founder. 
and they printed his uh, teaching out like the way a Christian church deliver a Bible to people. Uh, and um, in the last 20 years, this uh, state uh, practice to, 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 to deify Ho Chi Minh is taken uh, seriously by, by rural uneducated uh, women uh, and many other um, uh, supporters who are uh, scientists, like I mentioned, you know, the scientists turned spiritists in Vietnam. And this movement grow like wildfire with uh, tens of thousands of followers uh, in, in, in many provinces. Um, and they organize ritual days, which is, uh, uh, which is uh, um, a way of appropriating communist uh, holidays. And uh, they uh, stayed a lot of uh, uh, public performances and, and got into constant conflict with the state. And now, uh, so, so in this book project, uh, which I'm writing, I hope to uh, use this case of the, um, on, the one the on the one hand, state promotion, a personal account of a communist leader, how it, how it interacts with the popular appropriation of uh, uh, this very uh, count, uh, but, uh, but add the religious uh, flavor to it. Um, so that's uh, one project. The other project I'm looking at is uh, um, the question of human body and human remains uh, in, uh, in, in, in the sort of like, uh, if you want to do a, a, a social autopsy of Vietnamese society after civil war that the country experienced or gone through in 20th century, uh, there are millions of human born missing uh, all over Vietnam, uh, thanks to the war against France, the wars against America, and the war uh, between Vietnam and China in 1979. Uh, and the Vietnamese is a strong believer in, in, in the practice of secondary barrier. Uh, so the need to, to discover and repatriate uh, this born home to rebury them properly according to uh, to religious uh, ritual is is um, is something that every Vietnamese take uh, serious. But um, uh, after the Vietnam War, uh, Vietnamese government uh, imposed very strict uh, norm on commemoration and and post-war uh, uh, memory politics. Uh, so uh, it's not easy. For everybody to just go around and, and look for bone, um, but um, uh, after the moment that uh, American government uh, 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 reconnect with Vietnamese government in order to relocate the bone of about two thousand American soldiers still missing in Vietnam, then uh, uh, various social forces in Vietnam um, tap onto the the, the 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 opportunity provided by, by that moment to bring back a traditional practice of connecting the soul and relocating born using spirit medium. So in this uh, second project, I look at the interaction between uh, science uh, and, and religious uh, uh, practice in solving the question of uh, post-war uh, trauma and, 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 and uh, religious uh, imagination of the, uh, of the country after this violent uh, century. Wow. Well, those sound like fascinating projects, and I'm thinking of switching my discipline. Becoming, oh, becoming <laughs> Please do join us. <laughs> okay, I might, I might. You be careful of the competition, though. Um, <laughs> anyway, I know that Justine has to run off to class. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to thank you both for being here and talking to us. Um, well, I'm sure that, it, that uh, you know, listeners will have found this a very interesting conversation, as I did. And, uh, and hopefully we'll have a look at your, your various uh, essays in your 
edited book. And perhaps when your books are finished, we can have another conversation. That would be lovely. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us on and for reading the book and, um, and for introducing it to, to potential readers. Um, We really appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yes, thank you. And we got to talk about Apollo's ethic realism uh, seriously. Yes. Okay, thank you.